Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi there, I'm your host, Chat McLean. Today, my guest is John Pryor, Performance Specialist at Rugby Australia. Founder of Speed Power Play and Strength and Conditioning Coordinator at Sunbury Rugby. Highlights from this episode we discussed John's top tips for developing athletes wanting to, to improve their athleticism for on field performance, how to improve your influence as a strength and conditioning coach, John's three key rules to stick to to make sure you make the most of the France Bosch methodology, the importance of developing and knowing your own coaching style how to incorporate fun and play into your sessions, and why direct feedback is so important for developing coaches. Before we start this episode, make sure to join me on our next Prepare Like a Pro live coaching event. We have one for Australian rules footballers all around AFL game day recovery, how to improve your energy and performance, really important leading into the finals. That'll be on Friday the 26th of August, and one for strength and conditioning coaches. All about what you really need to know as a strength and conditioning coach working with team sport athletes. That's on Friday, the 19th of August. If you join our email list, you'll save 50% on both of these events. To join, head over to preparelikeapro.com. And of course, for all our Academy members, you get both events for free. Let's get into today's episode with John Pryor. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, John. Thanks for jumping on, mate. No, no, appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. But getting stuck in, let, let's start at the very beginning of your career. Uh, at what age did you discover you had a passion for strength and conditioning and, and working with elite athletes? Yeah, look, I read your question. I had to think about that. I think for me, yeah. mate, I, was, I grew up as one of 10 kids and, and I'm the youngest of five boys. So I was at the bottom of the barrel in any family wrestles or scuffles or games of footy in the backyard. And my next two older brothers were both kind of broad-shouldered, blonde-haired, good-looking blokes. And I was a little runty redhead. So uh, I think maybe at 14 years of age, I, I sent away for a Don Oliver weight training set. I've got a, you know, a Jim Bradley speedball and bag set it up in my garage and, and got busy training. I'm pretty sure it was either 14 or 15. And so I think in some ways, you know, I had a, had a very early experience with, you can, you can physically develop yourself, you know, so that sort of sense of engagement. And, and I think that probably was my first interest in it was, yes, not only trying to, you know, hold my own against my brothers, but just trying to physically develop myself. Yep. Yep. I think in terms of deciding, probably the second influence was at, at my school. I, I was a bit of a cheeky kid, I guess. And we had a phys ed teacher, a little jockey block, South African bloke, about five foot four and equally wide with muscle. And he, he, he was a really, really good phys ed teacher. And he also <clears> taught us year 12 PE and sports science. And I think that's probably the first time I'd come into contact with someone who trained and developed themselves physically plus he scared the shit out of me gave me a hard thing a couple of times which is not allowed these days but he was actually you know I say that jokingly but he, he was an inspirational guy so i think that would be the thing that sort of gave me the interest and then yep. you know we'll talk about it later but when i eventually got to university and then got my first job i had to really get ran into really great people along the way but i think even at, at 18 years of age in my, my first year of doing a sports science at ballarat uni I was already, I had a boxing group in my garage and I never boxed in my life, but I was coaching guys for boxing and studying Mike Tyson and go and teach the guys this. And I had a couple of Highland Games athletes who I was mm-hmm. coaching. Again, I had no background in those things, but m- maybe it was just a natural inclination to 
to coach for whatever reason. But but I'd had that experience of physical development, you know, out of necessity and in a little country town like Ballarat where I grew up. It's not a little country town, it's quite a big provincial town now, but yeah. I didn't really like getting information on training. It's not like you, you couldn't jump on the internet and find the weights program. I had to Yeah, yeah. I had to but get otherwise start off with whatever was on the poster that you bought with the dumbbell kit and, and work outwards from there. So I think that that thinking and that mindset that you can develop was was kind of inherent in my upbringing, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah. On that note, it's a, it's a yeah, good point that sort of came through that early on part of crafting. You're, you're working on your craft. It sounds like using your own body as a lab. How important do you think that is for no, professional coaches? At 52, I'm paying for that now. But I had a, a guy asked me a question the other day. I've just recently had knee surgery from 30 years of, of punishing self-experimentation. But I, I would do it again because it's been a fantastic learning yeah. vehicle, especially when you're learning something that's a little bit tricky. So we'll mm-hmm. come to transport stuff later. But even if you're doing speed development and you haven't done that before, you might have a background as quite a good distance runner. Or I think using yourself as an experimental tool, if you're capable, you know, if you're capable and able, even if it's a very humble way, I think it's great. I, I know that from a running point of view, I mean, I know I'm with, I've been with rugby 20 years, but I, I grew up Ballarat. So I grew up only with AFL. There was nothing else in Ballarat, AFL and netball. And I love netball, I'll come to that if we do. But yeah, obviously played AFL growing up and, and I was a scrappy little halfback flanker and not much skill. I think in years, so when I did my first year at university, I took time off footy so, and did a year's track and field, decathlon and mainly sprinting. I really learned to run. And then I went back and played semi-pro in the Western Plains, which doesn't exist anymore, but paid my way through uni playing. But I, I had this amazing experience of playing footy pre and post being able to run. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, I went from the back flank to the wing and then to the midfield, but all this space on the field started to open up. People started to fall off. You know, tackles started to fall off, started to win contact, and it was a was experience I'll never forget was that, you know, I probably maximised my running capability, particularly in terms of speed, but also yep. because I was doing 100s and 400s, you have a lot of alactic work, so you're doing a lot of anaerobic repeat 300s and just that combination of actually maximising my running ability and maximizing my running capacity. And I hadn't played for, I think, I know, 12 to 15 months, then going back and just thinking, wow, this is, you know, and, and I don't want to sell myself as a talented footballer because I certainly wasn't. But you had another and, gear. Uh, another gear, yeah. And it was, yeah. That, that's the best footy I've ever played yeah, that's 30 years ago. And I, I've had nothing to do with AFL, you know, well, very little professionally. So I'm not going to start speaking to your big AFL audience, but I will say that, yeah, that experience of absolutely maximising my running skills and speed and capacity, that was mm. a really makes a really big impression on me. And when I work with athletes, whether it's developmental, elite, I'm always asking myself the question, you know, is the, is the running we're seeing from this individual represent their absolute peak mm. capability and acceleration, yep. VMAC, multi-directional, and then capacity? And if they're not, then, you know, we've got to address that because we're all we're in running sports. You know, you're in, obviously your audience, I think, a big AFL audience on mm. rugby and rugby league, but same goes for hockey and, and field-based sports. So I know there's a lot of knowledge and, and we get a lot of information about capacity, but in terms of running skill, yeah, I, that was that was a m- very, very influential for me. And that was pretty crude. That was pretty basic compared yeah. to what I know now, but it, it left a big impression that, yeah, this has got to be a real cornerstone of, of my coaching. Yeah. And and I'm sure it'd be a range of a range of things, but knowing what you do know now, like 
how much of it do you think was was that environment by being around sprinters and seeing how they move and how much of it do you think was the drills of having a track and field coach and so good really good question they were crap drills they were yeah, right. sophisticated we actually overdid stuff we worked a bit too hard but yeah being in the environment where every guy in the training squad and even a couple of the girls actually were faster than me you when started and 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 i think sorry and I think first thing you're right, the environment was really big, getting into a, a track, seeing something different, being somewhere where you're now at the bottom of the pile. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to try and at training with some six or seven guys and they're all quicker than me at the beginning and even trying to win a stride through. Now no one's actually going max at the stride throughs at the start, but you know, it kind of gets competitive among sprinters and so I think yeah, it's a really good thing, particularly in the developmental, if you have that opportunity to go down and do some sessions in track and field, I think it's a great change of environment. You'll see attention to small details that you didn't have. Second part of your question was, no, the drills weren't that good. And if I was repeating the same process now, I'd have a lot more content, particularly around change of direction and deceleration and more specific things. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, that change of environment where where there's a much greater emphasis on the thing that, that you want to develop. So I reckon it's, you can't be underestimated. We Now that field sports are so professional, we all hear the same information. And if you go and look at how many AFL teams there are now, 16 teams, is there? Eight, 19, 18. 18, maybe 19 coming if Tassie get on board. Okay, so, I mean, I, and, I, and I guess I'm, I'm guessing here a little bit, but programs are so similar. Yeah. And I, think, and I think for your developmental athletes, there is that opportunity in that developmental phase when you're 14, 15, 16. Yeah, if you're, if you're a midfielder, you might go and run track in an off-season and do some 200, 400, 800s if you're, you know, I don't know if you, do you even have two positions in AFL anymore? It's, it's hard for me to yeah, pick yeah. But I yeah. know, if you're a power-based athlete going and working on sprints, I think it's a fantastic. And you mentioned how you're you know, overworked. Did, you know, compared to team-based athletes, so obviously track and field where it is, you, you, you're trying to develop that. I guess you really are measured off your training in the sense that it's a, it's a, an absolute all-out effort. Did it also open your mind on how much training can be done and how much the body can, can withstand? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you particularly, you know, if you if you do track and field, and if you're out to the 200, 400, 800, I mean, those those sessions are grinding. You know, mm-hmm. and you might do a we don't do a session, might be six 300s, but you're actually racing each one. You might be running them in 36 to 39 seconds. That kind of intensity and that kind of resulting fatigue, yeah, it's, it's a pretty, you know, I'm not saying AFL, you know, it, but it, having that experience will it. it yeah, that's a super high level of fatigue and it's a super high level of exertion and intensity. I remember I remember seeing, and it, I know the long story about Ben Cousins, but at his playing days, he was a fantastic player. I remember a documentary I watched where he was just going off to do his own running sessions and, I, and you know, really working intense anaerobic sort of training. And I think, yeah. Ben Cousins. Experience. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. I don't talk, I don't talk about top lead life after footy. I'm not my domain, but he was a fantastic runner with fantastic capacity. Mm. And I remember just hearing him talk about the intensity that he and the value that he placed on those really intense capacity type work. Yeah. I think, yeah, track and field great for that. There's a lot of limitations. I mean, if you apply track and field running approach to, to footy coach, but yeah, there's value just in that understanding of, you know, the intensities and, and the, the detail. Mm. And, and there will be no doubt some developing athletes in that will be pretty motivated now to, to go do some, some track and field training. What yep. about, uh, you've got a wrestling background as well, I believe, and combat experience in the off-season, like for, let's say, someone that's already pretty good with running and that's their strength and, and they've been identified, maybe they've 
they need to get more aggressive or they need to get better in their the inside game. Would you say wrestling would be the way to go? Is it boxing? What would be some of your favourite off-season sort of yeah, training? Yeah, so my, my background in, in wrestling is pretty limited. Like I, t- I took up jiu-jitsu and then, and then no-gear wrestling just, just so I could learn if, we, if it had a potential to apply to rugby at the time. Yep. So there's two, two parts to that question. I think absolutely yes, because if, if say you're, a, you're a young developing player and the physical part is one that you're either lacking confidence or lacking physicality. Mm-hmm. So the first part, mentally going and doing a little bit of no gi wrestling. I would say that if you did gi wrestling, so you did do with a gi, mm-hmm. and you were hoping that's going it, to, it can be quite slow and static mm-hmm. compared to compared AFL. It's more technical. I probably watch about six games a year of AFL these days. I'm trying to fall back in love with it. So I watch a few games and, I, and those little the scrimmages and those interactions, they're very quick. Yeah. If you go, you go and do gear wrestling, you actually end up in a lot of really slow, drawn-out chess matches where you might, you know, holding and choking and so forth. So no gear wrestling, I think, would be really helpful. Even doing boxing and anything physical that develops your confidence in that sort of physical engagement and interaction, I think, can be highly valuable, particularly in those formative years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah, definitely. So you can either approach it from a physical point of view, and if it's from a physical point of view, then definitely if it's wrestling, you want to find something that's a bit faster, no gear, so it's not... Yeah, if you go and do jujitsu, you might get yourself to black belt, but a lot, a lot of those, they can be quite static and very slow. Or you might actually find someone, there's quite a lot of good jujitsu and wrestling guys now who run little sessions for field sport where they'll adapt the techniques a little bit and the, the, the interactions will be quicker and faster because there's no, there's no 20 second wrestles in AFL, are there? I mean, it's, you know, just gone. A little, little bit of space and a quick give and things like that. So you definitely need that greater level of dynamism. But from yep. a mental point of view, yeah, if, even if it was jiu-jitsu and even if it was boxing and you're a young kid lacking in confidence, then it'll have value psychologically. I, I know that I know that when I, you know, going back to my own experience when I went from having a year off running and I went out to, just to earn money, actually, because there was good money in the country leagues, my running skills were good and all of a sudden I was playing really well and I was getting targeted by 35-year-old country blokes who wanted to knock my head off. <laughs> and and then back in those days, you could do whatever you wanted. There was no... Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty loose. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, just that time I'd spent in boxing and it gave me a lot of confidence. And I, and I wouldn't say... You I can hold your own. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that was natural for me. I I'm not, wasn't a natural, tough, aggressive person. So having that experience in, in the boxing stuff was helpful. So I think from yeah. a psychological point of view, there's big value there for developing athletes. Sure. Yeah. We're taking a short break from this episode to introduce the sponsor of this episode, Swift Performance. The fitness world is evolving and so too is the equipment needed to stay ahead of the game as a coach. Swift Performance delivers innovative technology in their training systems and vertical jump measuring devices to ensure accuracy and efficiency in training and testing. Developed and manufactured in Brisbane, Swift systems are built top-down addressing pain points identified by coaches. No hubs, no routers, multi-zone testing along with wireless charging means setup is a breeze and also looks great on the field. Their hardware is supported by an easy-to-use app, Synchro. Synchro delivers intuitive drag and drop drill editor, allows for athletes to be added and edited on the spot and easy to export the data. Only delivering the best, Swift gates are all capable of reactive agility protocols and testing. Strobe lights come as a standard, and for those geeks at heart, data accuracy is key. To stay ahead of the game, you need Swift performance on your side. And going back to your career 
progression from a influence point of view, maybe mentor you might call it, who are some strong influences on on shaping oh, you? I'm very lucky at university to have Warren Young. I don't know if you know Warren, he's a researcher at Ballarat University. I think he's retired now. But he he was, I, did, I didn't, hadn't really given much thought to it until just recently, but, you know, we were first, second and third year at uh, sport science degree. And this is, you know, 89, 90. So the, the idea of strength research and strength science was very, well, no one even heard of the term. So at that, he was a leader at that time. So we were doing advanced strength training and biomechanics. And I don't believe anywhere else in Australia was offering that. So got a really good grounding in diagnostic strength, looking at strength as it applies to field sport rather than just strength on its own. It's pretty much back in those times, you either had power lifters or weight lifters. The yep. two people we were getting information from, which are both great sports and I'm not here to bag them, but Warren was fantastic. When I got my first, pretty lucky when I studied my master's degree at Southern Cross, Rob Newton, Greg Wilson and Mark Fisher, who were three very smart people. And then when I got my first job, pretty soon realized that I had a good understanding of strength and, and linear speed. I didn't really have any comprehension of, you know, what we term functional training, multi-directional speed. So, I, you know, I didn't know Vern Gambetta from a bar of soap, but I wrote a letter to him in the States and cobbled together some money and brought him out to Australia. And yeah, he was the most influential person in my career in just opening up a whole realm of new, of new information and content and still is one of my mentors and still is a good friend. Extending from that, yeah, you know, when I got into rugby was that Eddie Jones is now the head coach of England, was a head coach of the Wallabies, and I've done nine years with Eddie, which is, a, I think, a world record. I don't think anyone else has lasted that long. But yeah. he's, a very, he's a very intense guy, but he, he was fantastic yeah, because he, he's completely committed to the art of coaching and to continual updating of your knowledge. So as, as long as he's been in the game, you know, he, he just, he's a continual learner. Pretty frustrating when you're, when you're his head of performance because you, you write these long-winded periodization plans, and then every couple of weeks he's tear it up and you know, he's continually searching, adapting, modifying. He was a great influence. In terms of having a real passion for not just existing in the industry, but seeing itself as a, as a developmental coach, whether you're 21 or 51. Mm. And, and he, he really instilled in me, I guess, that, that commitment. Mm-hmm. And then following on from that, which we'll talk about later, but was transport, which was really only because there were some problems I couldn't solve in Japan from a movement point of view. So I, I, again, I chased France down. He didn't know who I was. I met him briefly in Australia when Dean Benton had brought him out. But yeah, I guess I chased down a few people that I, that I needed. Backdrop to that story is that I, I actually, after my master's degree, I'd actually taken a job in ergonomics, not in sport. And I yeah, right. happened to be happy. So I'd already, it was a fully funded PhD and lots of money at the end of it. And I thought that was a safer bet than sport. Yeah. So I'd actually decided not to go into sport. And I was driving home. A friend of mine was in Canberra, was at a coaching conference. And with track and field coaching conference, I think, and then they'd had a session on SD. So I just stopped my car, drove into the Canberra track as it is. And Kelvin Giles was running a SNC session. And uh, I've said it before, but Kelvin would have been in his peak somewhere in his forties, big wiry, pommy bloke. And he, he ran this session and I was, yeah, I just thought that was fantastic. And I just thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So at that time I started actively looking for SNC roles. Before that, I was probably going to go down a, a different dynamic. Biomechanics yeah. path. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Sum, summing that up, mate, I've been extremely lucky to either bump into good people or have, have been able to find them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and really bring them in your circle by the sounds of it, like to, to have the confidence to bring someone in from, you know, over from America. It's, yeah, it's, I, look, I reckon it's, 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 an, it's an important thing. 
and, and I'm on the other end of it now where I've got young people, younger ETs asking for stuff. I think your approach to someone you want information from is really important. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I would just be diligent, be honest, be, you know, humble and forthright and, and do what you can for them, you know. Yep. And so, you know, you, you talked to Shane Lehane a couple of weeks ago and, yeah, another another guy I could think of is for Barry Horgan, who's there, there was there, the Brumbies. But both of those guys wanted to learn the stuff that I was doing and I've had 20 or 30 people turn up to my sessions just grab a, an iPhone and start videoing my sessions. Both of those guys approached me about their learning. So I would love to learn this from you. And mm. and then after that, then they you know, might help carry gear. In Barry's case, he said, I'm not going to video anything. Is it okay if I write notes at your session? And so he observed the sessions, wrote notes, and then at the end of it, can I ask you questions? So I think when you're seeking something from people who, you know, have probably got a lot of people asking for that information, just set yourself apart by the earnestness of your approach. And mm-hmm. it, may ta- it may take 20 repeat emails and it might take a little bit extra, but if you really think that person has got some answers for you, yeah, I think the quality of your approach and the authenticity of it's really important. So I hope that I did that in chasing down the people I had to chase down. Yeah, and that's, that's certainly when I'm looking at people who ask for something, because really a lot of people are pretty rude, like, yeah, I want to do a Zoom talk and I want you to tell me everything about So well, I'm going to say at yep. best, no, at, at worst, something a bit ruder. But I think, yeah, it's a big thing in our industry because now we all have that access to each other through through the socials, but you can still you can still get access to some, you know, really good people around the world if your approach is consistent, honest and, and earnest. Yeah, and like you said, uh, I think that's an important point, like give back as well by helping Helping them out in, in any, way, any way you any way you can. I mean, when yeah. Vern Gambetta came to Australia, I drove out to the airport, carried his bags, yeah, scrubbed, scrubbed together the most money I could, and put him in a unit right on Manly Beach. Do anything I can to make the, to make it a pleasurable interaction. Yeah, you know, because and especially people who are, you know, I guess I guess at you know the senior end of their careers, so the back end of their careers, they they like like we're on that now. You 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 definitely want to find a few young people to help them pass on your information, but logistics that dictate that you can't do that for 20 or 30 people. But yeah. two or three people will distinguish themselves and, and you'll, you know, there's a, it's, it's a really enjoyable thing at the end of your career to, to find a few people who you can help develop. In, in Shane's case, yeah, he's, he's learned the stuff that I taught him really well. And, you know, he would ask me five questions and I'd see him go in the gym and practice it and then come back and say, how's this? So, yeah, of course I'm going to help a guy like that. I don't need to anymore. He's off, he's off on his own. But I think, yeah, that, that's what certainly that's what I look for in someone who wants to, you know, want to assistance. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of, uh, they're not waiting for it to happen. They're driving their own careers. Yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're demonstrating their, you know, demonstrating their commitment to it and, and also, yeah, old-fashioned good manners for me. Yep, yep. Uh, no doubt goes a long way. Yeah, could, some good gems for... For those listening in, the strength and conditioning coaches, yeah, note, note that one down. You, you hear it all the time in the industry that obviously you've got to be a good coach and good practitioner, but good people go pretty far and maybe, maybe that's not as competitive as well. Yeah, I reckon that's right. Yeah. But I, um, I've got, I've, for example, I've got a, I've got a Zoom on Monday with a, an Indian Etsy. Now, I don't know him from a bar estate, but this, this kid just chased me down and chased me down and I get on the Zoom with him and he's just the most authentic, committed young guy. He, you know, his salary's bugger all, but he's trying to apply this certain kind of training and he then sends me videos on it. I'll give him my time for nothing because I know he's got no money. Now, I'm not saying you can do that for everybody, but he's just yeah. demonstrated his commitment to me. He sends me video edits of everything that he's done. It's, it's a little good little case in point that, you know, he hasn't got a cent to spend and normally I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to help 
but I, I can't say no because the bloke's just demonstrated complete commitment to something that I'm yeah. passionate about. So that's that's fantastic, mate. Pa- passing it on. That's love that. What what about for some some key areas of focus for the for the developing athletes listening in? Like from a running skills point of view, you you mentioned that early on how important that yeah. is for teams team sport athletes. What what are some great great drills? I'm not going to try and give you too much because I, I started in developmental athletes, but I've almost 15 years now been working at the international level. Yeah. So you, you get athletes two weeks before they're playing, so you've got to sharpen them up. And then I did start in the developmental system. And, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm nearly ready to finish international only. We either want to go back into developmental or actually go into yeah pathologies and rehab stuff. But I mm. think the first one for me is developmental athletes. If you're in AFL or a running sport, doesn't matter whether you're you're, you're naturally quick or naturally slow. Maximise your running skills. And that's inclusive of skill, running skills and running capacity and running sort of capacity in terms of acceleration, speed and and your anaerobic, aerobic capacity. I think, you know, I think now we're so robotic with a lot of our training, we forget to play. And I think a lot of play in that agility space is a really big part of development. You know, run at the goalpost, spin around it and see if you can hold your balance. And having a bit of play, I think, in that, multi-directional speed and agility and then if you have access to someone who can really coach that stuff I, I think I mean good development programs could you know have all that stuff built in I have seen some pretty ordinary ordinary ones I have to say where I see kids being taught to be quite robotic so that's my big thing is you know developing your running skills and I think for me and as a development effort developing good habits my, my belief is that habits trump motivation some days we're motivated some days we're not we play badly or the coach gives us a spray. Motivation can fluctuate, but if you develop really good training habits and, you know, it takes a bit of effort and energy to put habits in place, but once they're in place, it's pretty much, we, we our whole day is, operates on habits really. And I think at the development of athletes having really good habits, but habits that are specifically, you put in place for a specific reason. You know, I ask a lot of young kids, I, do, I don't work in the developmental space, but I, I guess I do because when I'm not with national teams, I, actually have under 16 girls football soccer training in here and mm-hmm. it's always quite humbling because I come back from the national level and, and work with the girls a friend of mine runs the club here so you know having habits that you put in place for a reason so you might actually have poor flexibility so I have some athletes who get out of bed and have a little mobility session is the first you know, breathing session and mobility don't make your first habit of the day jumping on Facebook because you, you you know if the first thing you do in the morning is let another thought dictate your mindset that that's really a poor habit for me so mm-hmm. a habit might be that you're actually out of bed do a breathing routine into a mobility routine that's a really good habit that might really suit your needs so i think that that's the other key one for me is in that developmental phase you can develop really good habits and i see you know we've got some really good developmental programs in in rugby australia now but you see a big difference when people come to the pro level those who have come from really good and bad academy program. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think you speak, I'm not sure the Bulgarian handball. Yeah. Valeri. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'd just say, if you want to hear more about the development, let's go back and go back and listen to him. Yeah. I and enjoyed, the, enjoyed that one. The Bendigo high school, his phases of training was pretty impressive. Yeah. Look, it's quite, quite a traditional approach, you know, yeah. that he was articulating, but there's many, many ways to skin a cat. I, just, I thought he was really thorough. But for me, if there's one message, running skills, maximize them don't be don't be disillusioned if you're the if you're only in that middle ground you're not the fastest or the slowest if you can find two meters improvement over over 40 that's massive if you can find some better balance you know you can regain your balance after a bump a bit quicker 
if you can develop your capacity a little bit more, I think that that's, that's my message really. And on the good habits part for, for the coaches listening in that are managing a, a large group and, and maybe it's a semi-professional program, so it's just themselves, uh, yeah, 30, 40 athletes. What are some of your favorite ways to, to get that message across? Is it when you're in the gym and, and you're hearing those one-on-one conversations when you have them and, and you're, you, 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 you're taking notes and then, you know, that having that awareness to be able to next time when you chat with them or in the moment when you first hear something to to give them a task or, or, you know, start to develop some habits or is it putting, you know, presenting to the group to encourage them to start driving questions and, and curiosity? Like what are some of your favorite ways to, to divide, you know? But that's a good question. Good question. So for me, I, I don't like, I, I think as SD, some of us fall into the trap of having really long introduction talks too, too long on the presentations and I, and I, yeah, you think of how many times our athletes are being spoken to for long periods of time. So for my actual session, I, I like to start with an ignition game. It might be a rock, scissors, paper, face flap, or diff- I like to actually start the session with energy. So I capture your attention, wake you up. I don't have any rules when I run my sessions in the gym in particular. I don't have any rules apart from if you yawn. If you yawn in my session, then all the boys congregate together and you either got to tell a joke and make them laugh or you've got to perform a dance. Because I, I believe yeah. energy, energy in the room and everyone being invigorated and alive, that's the key thing that has to precede meaningful information. Yeah. So I, I keep those group chats pretty short and then I'll, I'll try and, from that, from if there's habits that apply to everyone, yeah, I'll deal with those over time. But I, I normally run a timer and I give, I give one of the players a stopwatch. And if, if my intro talk goes for two minutes, I've got to do 20 push-ups or there's some punishment for me, not them. So I like to keep that part short. And I like to keep those individual conversations, yeah, situational when I think that person's most open to hearing and listening. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense? Yeah. Because yep. because you think of the amount of time that they're forced to sit and listen and it doesn't matter whether you're AFL, rugby league or rugby, and there's a lot of detail in the game now that didn't used to be. Mm. So they have, they have pretty intensive learning around the game itself. Mm. So I, I like a lot of our learning in SNC to be inherent in the session. So if I'm teaching coordination stuff, that the learning will actually be doing inside, inside the training. Yeah, yeah and yep. I'll have little snippets here and there, but I'm not one for long. I mean, I'm capable of long monologues, but I don't think that's in how athletes best interest from a learning point of view, or it's certainly not my yep. style. Yep. And I think you getting back to habit. I think as a coach too, once you once you know what your style is, you know you got to build habits around your own day to make sure you're consistent with that style. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to meet Neil Craig, Eddie, Eddie Jones, who I was working for at the time in Japan, sent me to meet Neil Craig. Then Neil Craig was the coach of Adelaide Crows, you, you may know. He was yep. a great sport scientist when I came through the system. And now he's the head of uh, maybe a high performance manager in England. But he's a pretty rough rough and ready bloke, good tough Aussie rules player in South, South Australia. I came in to meet him to talk about coach development. And he said, who the bloody hell are you? What's, the, yep. what's, your, what's your coaching style? And what is your session like? And I was just about to try and answer. And before I could even do that, he said, and before you even answer, if I run 10 players and ask them, are they going to say what you say? And I thought about that and I thought, well, I've really got to define, so I need to define what my coaching style and what I think my environment's like. So since that day, I've got a one pager, which identifies how I want my sessions to look and feel. And then on the, on the back of that, then I've got to think, well, okay, for me, it's energy and specificity. So I want the, you know, to be quite energetic through the session and I want the specificity to be self-evident so the players can see clearly the connection between the training program and, and their game. But if I'm going to do that, there's a, I, the sessions actually need to be well-planned, highly organized. I need to make sure that my 
mental and physical state is a certain way before the sessions and they're the kind of habits I need to put in place. And, and not to say that's perfect because I got to a certain point in my career where I thought, hang on, I'm not really living up to that one pager anymore. I'm, I'm actually not, not as energetic at the start of these sessions. And, and I think having that one pager as a coach mm. is, a, is a really good thing and it can it lead you down. It also led me to areas that I didn't have the knowledge and information I want. I know we're drifting topics a little bit, no, no, there's what that, um, that, yeah, yeah that, that, that chat with Neil Craig and, and like, I, I don't know, Neil Craig, I'm not, I'm not saying good things about him because he's a friend. I've only met him a few times, but that interrogation of me as a coach was really substantial because I yeah. had to go and think about, yeah, what do I stand for as a coach and, and would, would the players back me up? If he called them and they'd say, oh, no, JP, he's just a meathead. These sessions are pretty basic. Then obviously I'm not doing my job. So yeah, that was good, a good experience. And, and like I said, I have a little one page effort that dictates how I coach and I have another little one page that I've developed on how I need to manage myself to, to optimize that. Now, you know, they're not perfect, but they were two really substantial small documents that I developed, you know, from yeah. that meeting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fantastic, mate. Thanks for, for sharing that insight in terms of your own development with, so the, the purpose of, of that, I'm just thinking of what you mentioned there, where at times you would review that one page and you thought, okay, I was a bit off there with my, you know, sort of your values or what was written on that one page. And that's where the second page came about, where you've got your key areas that you need to do for yourself to be your best version yeah, of yourself. Well, is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So if you think of page one is about what I stand for as a coach and yeah. what things I think are important. I mean, and so for me, you know, maximizing athletic development, you know, agility, efficiency in the body. So making sure you're maximizing so their key things in terms of how I want the session to be. Yeah, I'll start with an ignition game. If guys are yawning, then that's probably an indication on me rather than them. But I, but I always make a point of if you're yawning, you're sucking energy out of the room. Mm-hmm. So that's my coaching style. And then down below that is areas that I've already got the knowledge on and areas that I'll probably need to keep updating myself. Yep. The second one pager is just for me as a person. Because because I, I say this to all young coaches, as S&C coaches, whether we know it or not, we're, we're energy givers. Mm-hmm. You know, you go in that room and you're giving, 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 and with the same for our physios, you know, it's the same for our massage staff and the same for our head coaches. And at some point, you know, I ask coaches, where are you recharging your batteries? Some people intuitively are really good and know that other people, and a lot of people I've seen, including myself at different points in time, you just run yourself down you run your batteries Absolutely. down. And it won't yeah. be that obvious. It won't be that you're so tired, can't get out of bed and don't go to work, but it might just take the edge off your coaching. It might just take the edge off your natural authenticity and energy that was previously exciting people to train harder. Yeah. I, I, I had a really great experience in that year that I took off from Aussie Rules and, and did track and field. The, the coach was just the most funniest, energetic, and he, he'd wisecrack and create all this energy. Then he'd go, right, I, I reckon you've got something special in you today. I reckon you're going to do that 300 and the 34.5. Yeah. And, and you started so it. He, he did it. You'll find something yeah. extra, and that was just his personal energy. So I think as S&C coaches, we're in the environment where we're giving energy all day long. How do you get yourself up for that as a coach? How do you recharge the bank? So I think a lot of I'm listening to, you know, different different people. Some people naturally are very good at that. Other people mm-hmm. are, are bad at it. We just work ourselves into the ground, and mm-hmm. we don't know until we've actually run our batteries down a bit. So yeah, I think it's really it's really important. It's not something that you know anyone ever talked with me about throughout my career. But, you know, the further you get into your career, the more responsibility that you've got, the harder it becomes to find time for whatever it is that 
that recharges your batteries. And is that with on that note, with that, do you have like your sort of weekly non-negotiables that you'll prioritize in your schedule in terms of like training and those elements that do recharge your batteries? Personally? Yeah. Yeah, as a coach, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I've, you know, there's certain kinds of training and stuff that invigorate me. There's certain stuff, nothing to do with training that I, you know, for me, growing up in the country, I have to get access to being out in the country at least once a month. I have to listen to music, mountains, fire, ocean. They're all little touchstone things for me that I need to access every every month or so. Other people, it yep. might be music, meditation, you know. Mind, mindfulness obviously is an in, in, integral part of that. You know, yeah. I, I, that first half hour of my day is, is consistently the same every day. Like I'm not preaching this for, for everybody, but I think, you know, having a strategy for how you can be at your optimum, you know, personal energy, I think it's, it's a no brainer. Mm. No matter what role we're in, in around sport, ultimately we're in the business of influence yeah. and, and our influence is dim- diminished when we're you know, look tired or we're speaking in a monotonic fashion. So I think it's really big. And then you mentioned how some, depending on where you're at with your journey, you might not even be aware that you're that, you know, chronically fatigued or tired. Yeah. When you when you do build that awareness and you realise going into a session before you're leading it, shit, I'm a bit off here mentally. What are some of your favourite ways to sharpen yourself up before you, you know, you have to get, is it, it's, or do you, you sort of feed off the group and that? No, play that game? It no, no. Yeah. So if it's if it, if from an acute stuff, it's, you know, if there's a session at 10 o'clock and at 9 o'clock, I'm pretty flat. I'm diving into an ice bath, you know. Shock the I'll, system. I'll, I'll, yeah. yeah, shock the system. I'll just try and upset the lot. You know, when I worked for in Japan, I mean, I had yeah, my own hotel room in Campbell Waste, which was great, and I literally had ice bags, and that was my quick quick restore of energy because that, that gets me back up and I'll blast. You know, I'm part, part deaf, so I play music very, very loud. But, you know, those two things would get me up in that acute one-hour type time frame. In terms of months, weeks, yeah, I need to get out of I need to get out of cities. I need country fresh air. I need oceans, mountains, fireplaces. They're the things that sustain me over a longer term. But I think as an, as an individual, knowing what they are is really, really important. Yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode with John Pryor. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with Lachlan Wilmot. For the footballers that are watching, the young footballers, what are some important things? Let's say you're getting a new client. He comes into Athletes Authority. He's a he's a young 16 year old, and he and he wants to develop himself to help his game. What are some of the things that you sort of work with with yeah developing footballers? What are your pillars, I guess, or your priorities? Yeah. Top well, three depends, sort of stuff. Depends what they're missing. I think as a whole, it doesn't matter whether you're a footballer, lacrosse player, and anything in between. Uh, at the end of the day, we we run them through a series of assessments to try and work out how we're going to influence them the best for our program. If if they're an under sixteen, they'll they'll fall a little bit more into our emerging athlete program or our LTAD mm-hmm. program, which is far more general and focusing on key pillars of everything from you know basic strength movements, compound movements, uh, good landing mechanics, good change of direction, and decel work. Then when we start to graduate into the the more specific, where we start to get a little bit more tailored to their actual sport and example. We use footballers. So if we're looking at, say, an AFL player for them, depending on key position, midfield, where they're going, looking at a key, a couple of their, their key resilience side of things. So, you know, obviously high-speed hamstring work, hip flexor work, Achilles calf, these type of things that we'll start to look at really nailing to make sure the wicket had the word bulletproof. To hear more from co-founder of Athletes Authority, Lachlan Wilmot, make sure to scroll to episode 25 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to the rest of the episode with John Pryor. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy it.
We'll move into the, the Franz Bosch methodologies now. What, 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 with the history side of things, what are some of the good and bad points to use when it comes to Franz Bosch work? Yeah, I think I know it's very controversial, and for me it was simple. I, I was I was in Japan, and and I'm pretty comfortable. I had a performance for the Japan national rugby team, and we developed great running capacity. We developed we had you know, very small guys, but we slowly developed you know lean muscle mass and all those things. Japanese athlete partly by, you know, genetic type and partly by the university system, they go through a really quad dominant. So I had guys pulling hamstrings left, right and centre when we tried to do any speed work. So I, I kind of figured out most of those things myself. Eddie Jones is a, is a great coach and had a really particular plan for how he wanted to move out, move the ball and move the players. And that required a really high degree of vertical and lateral agility. And I hadn't really been in the agility space that much. So I, I just need to seek someone who I felt had the expertise that I was seeking. So that was probably 2012 or 13. And I, I sought Franz out, brought into Japan for a two-week trial. It, it was as confusing to me as it is to a lot of your listeners when, when you look at it and think, well, what the hell's that? Mm. You know, but I, I, what I did is rather than trying, you know, being a program director at the time, I could have said, you you can do this and this. I, just got, I gave him chunks of time and I just let him do whatever he wanted. And I just sat back and observed. And, you know, I did notice that at the end of the two weeks, some of the guys, like, I know everyone's max velocity, their max Axel, I know all their data from GPS and, and also visually, I'm a, I've got a good eye, I guess. I'm a close observer of how people move. And I, yeah. have changed, I saw changes in that two-week window, not with everyone, and it wasn't, I'm not going to tell you it was anything crazy, but I saw some shifts in peak Axel players I knew very well. So my attachment to it wasn't that I was a Franz Bosch fanboy or, or anything like that, it was but I, I saw results that I hadn't been able to get before. That caught mm. my interest. So I think I had him then for six weeks, start of a World Cup preparation. But I'm coordinating the program. I'm coaching in the gym. I'm coaching speed on the field. I'm coaching wrestling, you know, all. So I'm pretty busy. Yeah. So I could only see little bits of what he's doing that I'm trying to. So my experience with it actually was perhaps not as grand as, as it could have been. But it was fantastic because I did get to him, see him coaching it with small groups had a couple of really important rehab cases. I got to hear him articulating. I got to see him coaching. So my experience with it was, was, was quite unique. And, and then, you know, a lot of people now, their first experience is just seeing what some guy posts on Twitter. And a lot of the times it's not with, not with an explanation and it's not telling you what they're trying to achieve and what they're trying to do. Yeah. So here's my summary. It allowed me to attack areas that I hadn't learned in traditional strength training, either ASBA courses or through anything I'd learned at university. So in terms of movement efficiency, looking at where energy might be lost. So like, I think in S and C, we are pretty good at thinking about how to build capacity. Mm. So we, we develop more strength. We develop better MAS, you know, distances. They're all building our capacity. But I, I think of that as like a, a motor car, you know, we're building a, a four cylinder out to a six cylinder. But what transit stuff taught me was, you know, how to pump up the tires. Cause a lot of the mm. times we build a motor, but we're still running on flat tires. So, you know, if your ankle stiffness is poor, you know, that's going to impact your acceleration. It's going to impact your top speed. If you, the lack of a frontal plane hip lock, well, that's, that's, that's energy being lost into the ground. So again, that's flat tires. So that was my first and a very crude experience with it. And from there, you know, there's a, there's a lot more complexity to it beyond which we can discuss today, but it allowed me to attack areas of performance that I just didn't have access to before, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, would, I would have, you know, I mean, I guess I, I, I'm pretty, you know, at that time I was a reasonable expert in, in speed, but I just didn't, 
I couldn't break that, break it down in, in, in a systematic way. And so now, you know, through Franz's learnings, you know, when we do our strength training, then we'll have ankle prefabs where we're working on ankle stiffness. We'll have, you know, high intensity hip locks where we're just basically getting better co-contractions around the hip. So we're not losing energy there. We'll have trunk co-contractions, so the same thing. So we're not losing energy, you know, with a, with a, a flaccid torso and so that we're, you know, pre-tensing the body in a way that we can actually optimize the way the body is designed so the hamstring can operate the way it's meant to operate, for example. But I think it's easy for me to say that because I've had that unique learning experience. I've seen a lot of people misusing the content and we've all seen that and, and that's really prevalent. Mm-hmm. I think for your people, for your listeners who are, start, who are either interested in it or who have started undertaking it a little bit, I, I just go to three things. If you look at a boss exercise and you're doing one, and I see guys posting them all the time, if you can't answer these three questions, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. The first one is validity. So validity meaning, okay, what is, what is that exercise for? Is, is, it, is it a hip lock and is there a hip lock related to acceleration? And, and if that's the case, then you at least know what it's for. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's a good start. But I'll see people do run-ups on the box and they'll have a dangly weights and they'll do a three-step run-up. But if I ask them that question, well, what, what are you hoping to achieve with that? Is it, is it high-intensity hip lock or is it ankle stiffness? Or is it foot from above if we're working on attractors? If you can't answer those things, then you probably need to take a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, the second to that validity, then intent and intensity. So intent meaning that it's some, you know, very complex looking exercises, but the intent of the movement needs to be clear to the athlete. So if I'm doing some lockouts or things like acceleration type drills into the wall, we need to establish what the athlete's intention is really clearly for them. Because again, we go back to some of those really complex stuff. If the athlete's just doing what they think you want them to do, but the intent is not clear and the successful or non-successful outcome is not clear, then there's little chance of getting a, a transfer there. And the third one I use is intensity. Okay, so when we're doing bench press or squat, obviously the weight on the bar and the speed with which we move it determines the intensity. But when we go to this coordination realm, you need to know what are the factors that determine the intensity. And so, you know, it can be force pressure, speed pressure or movement complexity so you know i mean i guess i if, if you really want to learn it and if you think it's uh, the online course which is it's just pretty expensive but I'll, like i said to you in the when we were chatting before i'm actually going back and doing the franz bosch theory course at the moment myself even though i've been a i'm, I'm not part of the franz bosch systems business I, I do run practical room sometimes but i'm going back and relearn the theory myself because i've actually gone quite a long way on the up on the application side of things, I'm going back to do the learning, and yeah, I think if you don't don't invest in it unless you really want to commit to that learning process. But obviously, you had Shane Lahane on last week. He hasn't done the course. He hasn't had exposure to France, but he actually learned in a slow and methodical way from me. So he learned four exercises, knew what they were related to. So if it's a, yeah. you know, if it if it's a acceleration hip lock, then he knew what it was relating for, knew what they were hoping for, and then he learned the execution test it on his own body and then he's ready to coach it he's built his capacity outwards like that yep and yeah i think that's the way to approach it and, and I, I definitely recommend it. it's it's a really good online course yeah i'm not sure what your audience thinks is expensive or not but you know i'm i'm a couple of modules in to doing it and and i'm actually finding that much easier to comprehend than the books and and again i'm very close to it all but i find if i read the two books i wouldn't actually be able to go away and coach on the back of it I find the mm-hmm. online course that combines the video and theories 
yeah, been really helpful. But yeah, there's no question for me. And again, I'm not saying that, that it is an essential part of every field sports preparation. It, it certainly is to me because it's allowed me to develop a system that's dramatically reduced soft tissue injury. If I run the program the way I want to run it with all the subcomponents using brands and methodology, then I can reduce soft tissue drastically. And I've had some, you know, probably at four clubs in three countries repeated that now. So I'm really confident in that. And I, and I wouldn't have, have learned that content without access to friends. But that's not to say you can't do it another way. I mean, I was, I was listening into you. Was it Valerie or Valerie or? Yeah, yeah, Valerie. You know, I was listening into his content and I'm thinking, married boss in there, it's a traditional approach, really good quality in management of his strength, good quality, you know, bio developments that, you know, that are born out of, normally born out of that track and field. There's good methodologies that are, that are different. But yep. if you just if you decide that you want to learn Franz Bosch methodologies, I just just emphasise that it's a it's a big it's a big commitment. Yeah, and yeah, if you stay if you stay the journey, it's it's a great skill set that will unfold itself. And when you started bringing in these drills on yourself and then with your athletes in a program, what what was it starting to? What were you taking out? What were you weeding out of your program to bring in these drills? It's a good question. I don't want to insult anyone here. I can't get you. Yeah, I guess. I guess if you look at a, yeah, a really long drawn out warm up, where you might have you know walk and hamstring scoops, and then you go to the mini band and start stepping sideways, and and twenty five minutes later, and you still haven't moved. Yeah, I, I that's gone. I, I can I can get the body ready very very quickly. So what I did is I I had a look through all of his content. Okay, this content highly specific and is, is targeted for individuals who might be either targeting agility or acceleration. Then I put the generic stuff in there. So for example, hip spindles and the generic content, I that replaced the traditional wants for me. So I have a really more lively, more dynamic and more skill specific warm up that I've developed on the basis of not 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 exclusively frames of stuff. It would come partly from some wrestling content. Uh, but and partly from Franz's content, so I can get the body ready in a more efficient way, more exciting way. That that's kind of the first thing, and that that will be at the start. It looks when we're in camp, we'll do an early morning routine of that. It'll be the first eight minutes of a strength training session. Mm-hmm. Then the then the second part is the specific needs. So I have two athletes who the main issue is the pathology of the knee. So they'll have fifteen minutes of their strength training time, which might be doing protective you know, co-contraction work around the knee. So yeah, first thing is, you know, re- replacing those long, boring warm-ups. Mm-hmm. And we can have, we have a lot of fun with that and, and a lot more specificity in that really. But yeah, it was hard initially because I'm thinking, well, and that, that's part of the problem is that when you do go down the, the pathway of, of Francis content, there's so much and making decisions on what's likely to be best suited to your team and then to individuals, that, that takes some learning. Mm-hmm. You've got to invest. But it, it's, it's very easy in the end. I've said before, I, where possible, if I have a 60-minute strength window, I like to have, like I had 21 players, I'll break you into three groups of seven, and you can go and do the simple, because in rugby, we, we need big, strong bodies, so we've still got all the basic, and, and, and you know, I love, my, I love my traditional strength training, so all those traditional stuff will be done either with a junior coach, or I'll go back and forward to it, or players might even self-manage their uppers, their uppers for example. Mm-hmm. But the group, the group of seven does the specific coordination work with me, and that's that's about a third or a quarter of your time in the gym, at least. And they're rotating, rotating, ideally. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the idea. It's not always possible. Yeah, but I, I would never be part of a one-hour strength session without coordination work in there, and it would never be less than twelve minutes. 
Emma. Yeah. You know, sometimes quite a bit more. So it's pretty easy to find that time. And but but I think at the certainly at the elite level there are there are times when I will direct players back to the players developed really good efficiency, movement efficiency, and, and I see a lot of the coordination is pretty well mastered. They might need some long contact power. That might be the limiting factor. So I'm still open to, you know, reducing it. But mm. I'm I'm yet to see many field sport athletes who have absolutely maximised their, you know, their capacity in terms of, in terms of speed, coordination, agility, and so forth. So yeah. for me, for me, it's always going to be in my programs. Yeah, and with those rotations, that's when you're looking at more the generic library exercises. So you just imp- as no, an athlete globally. No, so we, no, we we do the we do the generic stuff together. So every athlete is every everyone's going to do some some basic hip lock work. Everyone's going to do some some basic uh, ankle stiffness work. Everyone's going to do some trunk co contractions. Everyone's going to do mobility. They also like they create a hip spindle. For example, I won't demonstrate it here, but if I'm doing that, I'm actually getting it's a it's a low intensity hip lock, but I'm also getting really good range through the groin. I'm actually really getting getting quite good. So there's a multitude of things going on there. So that's the generic stuff. Yep. Then when you then when you come down in the rotation of seven, you'll either be categorised on a needs group, so you might be in the acceleration group, or you might be in the pathology group, or you might be in you know a different group. So in rugby, we might have guys who jump for lineouts, for example. They might just be doing some faster jump type because a lot of you know. So that's how I try and work it. So the generic stuff people do together, and I'll do anything I can to keep that interesting. So I'll change the routines every three or four weeks, let different players lead it, whatever's needed to you know, to keep that content fresh. Mm-hmm. Because when you're coming around in your group of seven, that content is actually either individually specific or group specific. So generally the motivation on that part of it, you know, quite high. Yeah. Quite, not, not a big problem to get them up for that. And then from a progression and, you know, purization planning point of view, you know, obviously, with, like you said, with your simple strength exercises, I imagine there's not a lot of leeway with the athletes in, in a sense, like they're doing their five by five at a percentage or whatever the plan is. And, and, Maybe they'll go up, maybe they'll go down if you manage them. But with this motor learning type of stuff, is it very much when you've got a small group, you've got the plan, but if a player's really switched on and they're grasping that drill, do you quickly just progress into the next drill or do you like yep. that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that, that that's where the answer is yes, but that requires the development of a skill set. So you, if you don't have that skill set, if you've just learned some of the basics, you, you can still get a result. I mean, I know when I was in Fiji, the players had done none of this stuff before and they were all big muscular guys, but but all had been playing overseas and leading a very sedentary lifestyle. So there was really easy gains there with the simple stuff. Yeah. So if you have done Friends' work for a long time, then it's pretty easy for you to watch a group of seven and say, okay, I can, that's too easy now. And generally I work on about 30% failure. You know, you actually want failure with some of these drills. And if, if it's not anything like challenging, yeah, you, you'll, you'll actually progress there. But so it's periodized really on time. As in, I've got that. I've got that content for twelve minutes. When it's no longer challenging, yes, I'll take it up a little bit. But it's probably not periodized in the same way that the major lifts are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you've got twelve minutes to get them moving as best they possibly can. Yeah, awesome. I mean, then, then look, if you if you were if you were if you were individual one on coach, there'd be much better ways. You know, you can. But I, I I don't live in that world. I live in the world where I've got you know a squad of players, and you've got to try and find that balance between group management and and getting the most specific content you can so yeah yeah i, I, found, I found by managing it by time a good way to do it yeah and then uh, and I, I imagine majority of the listeners are in that same boat where it's, yeah so they 
these are great tips to uh, apply, even if it's not specifically Franz Bosch, but it might be some of your drills in your app or or this sort of quote. I think, I think it's just there. It doesn't matter if it's Franz. It's, it's yeah, you know, and all that content, you know, being ready with your progressions and and yeah, something's no longer meaningful and no longer challenging. You've you've got to be ready with your progressions because I think it, you know. I'm always, the biggest thing I don't like is athletes going through the motions. If it's not content that's engaging and challenging, they're better off going and, and resting and, and being, fresh, being fresh for the on-field session. I, I don't like to double dip. So if I'm doing speed and drilling leading into the on-field session, and I don't like to have the same content in the gym. So if, if, we, if we're doing our, our drilling and our bounding and stuff leading into the on-field session, I definitely will have much different content. So then I might focus on off-feet content in the gym, so it might more be trunk co-contractions, hip co-contractions, as well as our traditional strength. But I think sometimes we are, and myself as well, can be guilty of double dipping. So we, mm-hmm. we have plyos and we're doing max 10 meter axles in the gym and the player knows in the back of his mind that he's doing that in the morning, but he's got to be judged in the afternoon on the, on the field session. So I try and avoid that double dipping. I try and look when I really want to stress the nervous system, when I really want to stress the musculoskeletal system, obviously, you know, high, high impact, you know, on field, and I'm not going to do the same thing in the gym. Mm-hmm. That's pretty straightforward, I guess. But yeah, having learned Franz's content, it gives me a really good way to underpin in the gym what I'm working with on the field without double dipping and, and, and repeating. With the, those sort of key areas of focus with the ankle stiffness, trunk, trunk stability, hip lock, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see coaches that maybe haven't done the course making with athletes? Validity, intent, intensity. So first of all, they haven't worked out what this drill is good for. So it looks cool and they'll throw it to the players, but you really got to have a good explanation of exactly what part of the movement pattern it can potentially enhance. And I think then how to coach it. Okay, now a lot of them start trying to coach it by detail, saying, oh, put your hand here, move up here a little. No, no, it should be outcomes. So you have tasks, for example, there'll be an endpoint. So, and if you get that right, then you develop an intrinsic coaching experience for the athlete rather than one. So for example, if we go to a traditional, you know, just doing an eight skip, for example, Mm. now that's okay. They've got their place, but there's no feedback coming back to the athlete there unless the coach happens to say, that's really nice. Jack, that was a really good one. But in, you know, if I'm I'm coaching prefabs in the gym, for example, I might be doing an ankle stiffness prefab, which might be a low position switch in rotation with a pole, I might have two. Once it's, once it's learned properly, I'll have two athletes, two players standing, facing each other, and there's rules. Okay, rule one is we start in this position. Rule two is you've got to switch twice to get back to the starting position without your heel touching. Then I can start racing them. And that's much more powerful than me trying to coach details because they will self-organize. So they have a stick on their back, and that dictates that their spine's going to be long. We're going to have co-contractions going on. The rule two is, you know, heel off the ground. Rule three, we just race. And so if we can get those rules right, and if we can get the intentions and the endpoints, and I know it's talking shop a little bit, but if you've got those things right, then you've got a good chance of, and you know why you're doing it and it's structured and you know your content's assembled well. If you're just picking single exercises off that you've seen online, you're obviously much less likely to have any positive chance. But I re- I, you know, I don't want to be too snobby about it because everyone can learn in different ways. But the plate for that experimental stuff for me is on your own body. Mm-hmm. Or if you've got a couple of mates who don't mind training with you, go and go and play and go and learn that stuff. But don't be doing it with you, you know, with your athletes. athletes. But by the time, if you're going to put his stuff in place, then you should have done your homework and learned what you're doing by yep. 
yeah, it's a slow burn by the sounds of it. There's a fair bit going on when you're coaching and leading a session. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I think the the first phase is pretty easy, you know. And I've seen, you know, I've seen a guy like Shane Lehane when he, you know, he obviously had heard about it and seen it when I met him. It was two years ago. He was came into the Wallaby squad and um, ran the strength for us. So he had seen some of it and could show a few exercises, but if I asked him those questions, he'd be zero, zero, zero. Yep. But then he started building out his toolkit little bit by little bit, and, I, and he sent me through a collage of stuff that he's done with the swans the other day. Bloody good. I was really thought it was terrific. And yeah. so, yeah, it's very possible to learn it, but, but understand that it's a, it's a commitment and that you build outways, build your skill set outways. Yeah. Probably, probably a, go through anything, though, really. Yeah, absolutely. Having purpose and with the validity intent and intensity that you mentioned, the stick and, and having that cure, keeping the heel off the ground and then the competition. So you're ticking all those three areas. Do you have like your own library that you've created or, or do you, <laughs> yeah, I do. you just have them in your, in your head? Yeah. No, I have, I have a library. I have a library that I've built myself and then and a library that Fran's developed for me. So I pretty much only use the stuff that I'm really confident in coaching. Yeah, and, and that I know how to, that I know what are the key drivers of that intent and intensity. But yeah, I, I built that library out, and you know, who's a young physio SC who I coached him when he was a fourteen-year-old, and then he I sort of mentored him a bit in SC. He's now probably twenty-eight and working with a European football club. You know, he, he's got a bigger library than me. I've, I've actually he uses a lot more content than I do because he's learned really well, has direct access to fans. I, I choose to have a smaller library of content that I'm really confident with and I know work. But that's the same as I think any, you know, it's the same in strength. But yeah, I do. I have, I have that library and I have it on little, you know, little mini software that I can spit stuff out and design programs as I need to. And then with the progressions, how does an athlete sort of earn the right to change their, their main purpose? So like you mentioned, how you break them up into a pathology group and it, so that might be pretty straightforward if, the, if they're, I guess they might, from that one, there might be a consistent drills that they do just to keep themselves feeling good. But for like the performance side of things, is it, do you ever change someone who's working on agility? Do they eventually move to maybe acceleration uh, or? Not, for me, not normally because I understand that I'm, I've usually got a three, a three month window or, and we're competing through that time. Yeah. So normally you'll stay on that same grouping, but yeah, but no, it's, it's a good question. If, if someone had really poor acceleration mechanics, and that was our primary focus. And so their boss content was focused in and around that start and acceleration. If it was a developmental athlete, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I do a very poor man's version of a, a boss video analysis. And in fact, it, it really not only content I've learned in France, stuff I've done traditionally. If that video analysis shows me that, well, actually the ankle stiffness is now much greater than what it was, I'm looking at these, I'm looking at mid stance, I'm looking at off and all those things are a lot better than they used to be. Yeah, I might shift that person across to agility. Uh, but in my environment, that doesn't happen that much because we're, you know, we have them for short periods and, and need to maximize a single result normally. Yep. And then moving over to the generalist versus specialist in sports setting, where, where do you sort of sit with that? Yeah, look, just coaches. something I think about quite a bit is, is and it's particularly hard for your generation and below, it's because, you know, I mean, there's so many young SNCs now do you become a specialist or do you, you know, have a broad set of skills? Mm. I think the thing I see now, just watching young people come in, the ones who are highly specialized can sometimes have a pretty poor appreciation for the whole program and how it fits together. I, I'm Vern Gambetta, who again is one of my mentors, 
he has a saying which I can't recall at the moment, but you know, being a great generalist with a couple of strong points. So you, you're comfortable taking flex, you're comfortable taking conditioning, you can do the GPS and you can do strength, but then have one or two areas that, that your specialist skills and authenticity are just absolutely obvious. I actually think that's a lot more powerful and potent than just, just having that one little, because it's the same for all of us. When we, when we really highly develop one skill, we tend to see things through that lens yeah. a, little, a little too much. And yeah, I think in the field sports environment, to me, I think that, you know, at, certainly for, you, for your younger SCs, getting that breadth of skills and then saying, right, I particularly feel that I can zero in on this one. And, but yeah, being, being, being cautious of going too specific and too narrow in your focus, yeah, that's, that's my particular view on it. Might be, might be other people might have a diametrically opposed view. Yeah. And you, yeah, you mentioned like how energy and specificity were like two key areas of focus for yourself when you're looking at developing yourself and, and reflecting on, on your sessions is with the specificity side of things. Is, is that where, like, it sounds like throughout your career, you've had moments where you're like, shit, this is something that I need to work on this area. And then you'll seek out an expert or you'll do a certain workshop and upskill in that area. Is that, um, yep. something that you've naturally done or did someone sort of guide you in that direction? It's a good question. I think partly naturally, but I've, I've just been like Eddie Jones, who I worked for for a long time. He just, he, that's where I, I mean, you know, he goes and seeks people who he needs. I mean, even when he's already considered one of the elite coaches, he's often soccer team in Europe learning from another coach, Dean Benton, who you may or may not know of as head of performance in Rugby Australia. And, you know, he's just a lifelong learner. So I've been around people who, you know, have that approach and inclination. For me, I, I, I tend to, I tend to prefer rather than doing courses, I like to seek individual. I like to go to yeah. the course and, and find out, but it's not always possible. But yeah, it's essential, you know. Unless you happen to be supersonically gifted, uh, the rest of us have to acquire that, you know, knowledge and skill that however we can. Yeah. But it, it is, yeah. to me, it is very inspiring to, you know, to work with these elite coaches who are still lifelong learners and there's heaps of them. And uh, you mentioned, yeah, how like, you know, obviously to be able to survive in the industry early on, you probably do need to be a generalist and take what you get. And then as you, you start to grow the, the power of having to make an impact, I guess, having those one or two skills. What are some of your, for those listening in that are starting to search for that, to maybe get a lead role somewhere, what are some of your favorite ways to work out, I guess, for yourself, where you should find those strengths that are going to see through and stand out in the industry? Do you mean if you, if you want to be ahead of performance and you're trying to get, because I've, I've always done the opposite. I've always thought not to be ahead of performance because I love coaching on the field. Yeah. And I've ended up getting ahead of performance in Japan and, and Suntory and, and Fiji, but I never wanted to be. And I guess, I mean, sorry, for, for someone that's doing quite well, so they're, they're doing, they're performing well in their role as, as the generalist, yeah. but it's starting to get to that point now where they want to have those one to two areas that they're, they're really good at. What would be some of your methods to, to work that out that, that is going to stand out with the industry, whether that be strength and yeah, power, yeah, sports it's genuine, it's genuine commitment and going outside the box. So, you know, one of my subordinate or junior staff, you know, at a, a club I work with, didn't have any skills in the contact tackle kind of area, went away and did wrestling, came back and all of a sudden it's got these skills, but genuine, authentic commitment and going outside our, our circle to get that expertise. That, that's pretty impressive, mm -hmm. you know, and that'll, that'll catch the attention of people. I think the other thing is, you know, we're in the business of influence. So you may well understand your content that you're trying to convey to players, but how good are your skills of summing it up in a, in a brief, articulate fashion? And then 
do you really know that the players digested and ingested what you said? So I think, you know, if you, if you're not a natural, if you're not naturally articulate and succinct, you might need to go and work on that mm. because I think the use of language and the briefness of language is underestimated. I think we, I see a lot of young athletes, really earnest, good young people, you know, guys and girls who have invested time in their learning, but they're repeating back to the players the content that they've read. And players are polite, they'll sit there and put up with that introduction. But I think working on your skill set, you know, how could you make that communication different? How could you make it memorable? Can you think of me, think for me one memorable thing a coach has ever done or said to you? Okay, you got 10 seconds, Jack. Tell me something. Yeah. Did the coach ever influence you? Think, oh, I remember that session because he did that. So I think, yeah. you know, thinking about how that information that you're presenting might be digested better. Yep. You know, is it, is it a player that you meet one-on-one? You have a boxing session with them for 20 minutes and then when they're really tired, you sit down and you talk about, because I think we're in the business of influence. Mm-hmm. Really, we are trying to influence better behaviours on the field and off the field. And there's a science to influence. Some people have a natural ability in it, other people don't. You know, I've got one developmental coach, very good coach I know, and his, his knowledge is way beyond mine. His intelligence is way beyond, but not particularly good speaker. And, I, and I'd be saying to him, he's got to go to Toastmasters or find any uncomfortable environment, put himself in that environment and develop that skill set. Because we, you know, yeah, like I said, communication skills are the avenue through which we have that influence. I think we don't talk about that enough, really. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Yeah, thank, thanks so much, John. We'll, we'll move into the lighter part of the, the, the podcast now to get to know well, I'll call you JP now that we've had a chat for longer than an hour. <laughs> Which favorite inspirational quote or, or life motto? You don't necessarily have to have one, but is there something um, that you... Yeah, probably the main one for me is, yeah, youngest of 10 kids or second youngest of 10 kids. Dad was a pretty a pretty scary sort of dude, but he also, his life motto, and he sort of articulated this before he died, which is 20 years ago, but basically to have a seriousness of purpose and a lightheartedness of execution. And... And I think that's what I try and do. I try and be absolutely dead serious about whatever my goals are and goals that we set in the athletic environment. Mm. But but it's a long journey and, and it's a lot better journey if we have fun along the way. And they're not mutually exclusive. I think when I was younger coach, I'm saying late 20s to 30, I, I was way too, not too serious because it's, it's good to be serious, but I think I was always in a gruff mode and I wasn't enjoying the journey. And I know I certainly squashed a couple of athletes because every session was hard and exhaustive. So I think yeah, that'd be my main thing, you know, serious purpose, lighthearted execution. Yeah. And, and the other thing, like I said to you before, my life motto is energy in, energy out. You know, yep. if, if at the moment I've taken a three month break from coaching at the moment because I had knee surgery. And, and what I also realized at the end of that during this break now was that having had that sort of knee pain with so long, my energy banks dropped down a little bit. So I think energy in, energy out as a, as an S&C coach, Go and find, if you don't already know, a lot of your audience might know already, but mm. if you haven't worked it out, go and work that out. Mm-hmm. Because it's the same thing. There's a lot of, there's a big cost of this industry. It's hard. And there's not many 50, 60-year-old S&C coaches on their first marriage. You know, it, it can really be hard on your life, hard on relationships. And I think uh, working out the stuff you do either side of, you know, for example, when you, you finish a big day at the club, are you going to carry those problems home back to your partner and, you know, are there little resets that you can use to, to manage your energy? Because it's a tough industry, you know, mm. and, and actually the further you progress, the tougher it gets from, from that side of things. Maybe my two things. Yep. 
And what about in your work life? What are your pet peeves? What makes you angry? I, not much gets me. I was pretty quick to get angry as a younger coach. Yep. Um, not not much. I think the main thing for me is, you know, is a lack of authenticity. So anytime that people are purporting to be what they're not or have knowledge that they're not or, you know, I, I don't like inauthentic behavior, I think, hmm. you know, I, I, that's pretty pretty much it. Not much self upsets me. I only have one rule in the gym. If you yawn, you get punished. Everything else, I'm, I like people to be energetic in my coaching environment as long as it's not destabilizing the content. Yeah, not, not too many, not too many. It, it, I sometimes feel a level of frustration that, you know, we have athletes when you get to the top level and they're on these huge salaries and we don't see the commitment from them that we think should be there for that. But then we've actually got to, rather than questioning them, we've got to question ourselves, you know, that yeah, comes through our environment. And yeah, so yeah. That, that's when I go back to the communication. If I'm not, you know, and we've got a couple of real tricky ones we certainly have had in Australian rugby that we haven't been able to impact on them. So we've got to keep asking ourselves, okay, are, they our, are our avenues of communication effective? If not, try something different. But yeah, have, have fun along the journey is a big one for me. Favourite way to spend your day off? Try and get out to the bush. I've got a little, I live in Sydney, which is obviously very busy. I've got a little bush block about three hours away. Get out to there. I've got a two-year-old and an eight-year-old boy, mate. So I'm, anytime I get, I want to spend, you know, take them somewhere. But definitely for me, getting out of the city, getting back to nature. Which fortunately, living right on the beach is, is one easy way for me. But yeah, they're the big things. Back to nature for me. I've got a kayak and I go and find a river and paddle for a little bit. They're all things around nature for me. Yep. Well, thanks so much for, for jumping on, Jen, sharing with us uh, your journey, but also, you know, success leaves clues and I'm a big believer on that. So the, the practical tips that you've given us and stories along the way has been um, huge. I know I've got a lot out of it and no doubt the listeners have as well, both athletes and, and coaches. In terms of 2022, I know you mentioned you're having a break at the moment to recover from your, your knee surgery, but what, what's on the horizon for you for 22 that you're excited about? Look, right at the moment, it's just I haven't had time to to really read and learn. So I'm actually like doing friends with online course. That's, that's been enjoyable. Just reading a lot more. I mean, because the higher you get up in the system, the less time you spend actually learning content. So it's actually mm-hmm. just, just learning again, getting back to learning. And for me also, I, you know, we get into this job because we love training, but then down the line, you get less and less and less time for training. Right at the moment, it's just for me, investing back in my own personal training, practicing some new methodologies and new learning. So that. That's exciting. When I return to coaching in 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 September, yeah, I'm excited just to you know relaunch with a with a, a new level of energy. So I think uh, apart from that, mate, just if you got, if you got two two young kids, that, that's about as exciting as it gets. So yeah. they're the things that keep me excited for this year. Yeah. Well, with your current role, it sounds like you're doing a fair bit of consulting. So when when you are back back in three months' time, what what does that look like? What's sort of like a typical? For me, most likely in September, I'll be over in Suntory in Japan, which is great. I've got four young SCs there, young, young, 30s, 30s and below. So young 30s and below, so all young guys. And my first project will be, yeah, working with them, developing them. It's a, it's a club I've been with since 2009, had a lot of success. And then after that success, the complacency's crept in. So really excited to get over there and relaunch that program and, and to work with those really good young coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and see if we can change the environment and get a little bit of the edge back that, that the club worked really hard to get. But yeah, no, it's, I guess it's, it's a natural progression as you get older is to enjoy more, you know, developing young coaches. Yeah. What, what are some of your favorite ways to, like, is it, you know, 
every day, every session where there's an element of development just by either them seeing you or through reflecting on a session or is it more, is it a bit more formal with the way that you like to sort of develop? Uh, no, I'm a pretty, I'm, sometimes I'm too informal actually, but yeah, I'm pretty informal, but I'll, I will definitely say, look, you know, here's this block of time given I want you to run, this might be a, you know, I want you to run a contact prep session and then just, I keep out of his, get out of his way. Cause the last thing a young coach needs is the senior coach standing on top of him, but I'll observe it from somewhere where I'm low key. Yeah. And yeah, giving that feedback. Cause I, I think, yeah, as, as young NP coaches, a lot of times we don't get much feedback, mm. you know, the head coaches sometimes don't watch our sessions at all. So even if you have, if something I, I did it myself, I've, I've actually paid people to come and watch me and observe and give me some feedback. So I think that's an essential part of it. And if your head coach is not giving you that, you might need to go somewhere else to get it mm-hmm. or even seek it from players if you're, if you're brave enough. Yeah. But I, I, I will do that, you know, continuously with these coaches and yeah, I, I, I guess I probably, I prefer it to be semi-formal. So they've got a project and they'll get feedback, but I'm not going to do all that, you know, you know, across the desk in a meeting. Yeah. So when you see stuff, you'll, you'll let them know pretty, pretty quickly and sort of the more in that nature. Yep. But I mean, if you, you know, I ask you, you know, do you know when you're taking a speed session where you're standing, can the players always, do they always hear you? Are they always seeing you? Did everyone actually see the demonstration? Getting someone to video you and play back a session that you took, it's bloody confronting at times if you haven't done it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's whether you're 25 or 50. So yeah, it's, it's good to be in a position to do that for young coaches. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll start to wrap it up, mate. Thank you. For, good. Thank you again. For those that want to get in contact, where's where the best place to uh, look up? Probably, I think I've got a Twitter at, at Speed Power Play and at Fit3K, it's F-I-T number three letter K, so either of those will get to me. I'm just in the process of writing a whole lot of content for Speed Power Play, so the, I'll be sticking some of that out in the next few weeks. Wow, awesome. So yeah, you can get me on those. I'm, I'm not a massive socials person and not much of a self-promoter, but yeah, you can get hold of me on those and, and yeah, happy to, happy to have someone do that. Yeah, I'll add them in the show notes for those listening in so you can click the links. And uh, yeah, thank you for everyone that's tuned in as well. If you tuned in halfway through or three quarters, make sure to listen from the first minute because yeah, John's provided us value all the way through. So definitely want to listen to the whole episode, guys. This will live on our YouTube channel as of now. And then if you want to wait for the podcast, we'll release it next Sunday. So uh, yeah, looking forward to publishing it. But yeah, thanks again, John, and, and looking forward to watching your career, the rest of it from afar. No, Hopefully I'll catch up whenever you're in Melbourne next. Yeah, yeah, we'll be. Thanks, Jack. Awesome, mate. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And, you know, and because they hear it 
on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.